This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. So do you feel bored? And is it is it bored that is your problem or the fear that you're bored? And so when we're afraid that we are bored or boring... Um, either bored because we're not doing anything interesting or that we are boring, which means others might not see us as interesting. What do you do with that feeling? I guess one of the big keys, and there's a great quote by Nathaniel Brandon about this, the first step toward change is awareness. So we probably ought to be more aware of what we're feeling, whether we're bored or are we afraid of boring, being boring? Do we have some compelling, driven unexplored assumption in our head that says you shouldn't be boring or you're going to amount to nothing. And then once we can become aware of that, the second step is to accept it. You're bored. You've got you've got this state of, uh, you know, you, you really literally, as she put it, are irritably restless now. And that might make it so you don't love your job. You're struggling with your family. You wonder why you married the person you married. Maybe some of these things aren't telling you to just ditch all of these people or get rid of the job. Maybe boredom is simply saying it's time to make some adjustments that either make the game more exciting and interesting, or maybe you need to take some things in a different direction or just get better at what you have been avoiding. Powerful insights about each of us as human beings. We can either become aware and or not, and we can either accept it or not. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. What I'm worried about when it comes to all this fake news is I think we're just getting lazy. We, we're, we are just lazy consumers. And if, if we like the information to come to us, and with, with all this great technology, we don't even need to – we really don't need to do anything. It will be hand-delivered to our nice little device and mine it'll even come up in a pop-up window to tell me wonderful important breaking news um and then all of a sudden we may not even check our sources so you got to be careful and one of the big pieces of advice i have is i think there's a it's a scary moment the minute you make it um, about a financial enterprise and gain, so the minute we're now going for money, then truth might be impacted. Or the minute it's there's an entertainment value to the delivery of the truth. So we we not only have to read and study, but if if it's not entertaining, you don't want that information. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting that? Uh, Republicans have such great success on talk radio because I guess they can make it more entertaining and they can gather audiences. Um, But then there's not a lot of really conservative television talk show hosts at night. All of the talk show hosts at night tend to be more liberal. So liberals can make the television funnier so they can skew the information. Republicans can skew the information Uh, on the radio because somehow they have a corner on that market. But where does the truth lie? And it's got to be somewhere in between, right? And and it can be in both sides. So become a connoisseur. Look through it and find your favorites and make sure it's diverse. And question, question. You should be, you should almost have an inherent doubt about everything you read. 
find the sourcing, figure out where it's coming from. And just because it, it aligns with what you believe in doesn't mean it's true. So we also have to figure a way to intentionally start questioning, questioning some of our own belief systems. It's a, lot to, it's a lot to do. And it's a lot to ask from people that may not even care in the first place. You know, as long as the Kardashians are good, life's good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, again, we've, we've uh, had a couple uh, discussions over this last few days about poverty. And remember, yesterday we talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress. And stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the LDS Church, that, um, you know, is the, the sponsor really in the end of this show because of it, Brigham Young University, is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have they they have your church leader will come your religious leader will come and meet with you assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty the church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet we have jobs programs we have um we we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet but the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant and i believe in every single human being in every heart is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight-or-flight brain, we, we start spinning. And we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them. And we always think, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay. But again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma, but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that'll help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs. We've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the 
just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't, they're just lazy. If you believe that, you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end um, some of these, these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There are a few tricks uh, to emotional management that I think can help you take control of this fight or flight part of your brain. The fight or flight part of your brain, remember, is it's there to protect you. But as we learned, the protection is just as much for your physiology, your body, as it is for your psychology or your identity. So our body, our, our fight or flight instincts will kick in just as strong and just as aggressively for the need to protect, you know, don't make fun of my high school as it will for, um, you know, I'm going to kill you. It's, they're just they're threats. And it's, it's not like the body can always distinguish, especially because the amygdala is so wired to fight or flight instantly. So some rules that we teach in my program – um, again, and, and uh, Dr. Kaplan hit it perfectly, one of them is just to start noticing your thinking. The more aware you are and the more aware we all become of our own thinking and how we react to certain events, how we see certain things, the more abilities we have to handle these events. Again, it doesn't eliminate the fact that I have issues, but as soon as I know that, boy, I'm really sensitive to certain things. For example, I know a bigger trigger for me is um, is more when my kids, like, question my authority. And when they question my authority, that's more likely to set me off than um, – or my, ex- my experience than almost anything else they can do. They can call me a name. They can say whatever they want. But when, you know, when I say something like, you know what, okay, time for bed. You guys got to go to bed. And they're like, well, mom said we didn't have to. Boy, what has your mom got to do with this? And off we go. So what triggers you? We want to start to identify what the triggers are. And and generally, I've found that we tend to be triggered by any time we question if we're capable. If you're questioning my capability, if you're questioning if I'm loved, if if I feel what you're doing is attacking me in a way that I feel unlovable, or when I feel unsafe. Those tend to be the three biggest triggers I found. Um... Lack of safety, lack of capability, like I'm just not cutting it anymore, or lack of lovability. So think about it. What triggers you to, you know, to go off? What What's the thing that most pushes you to just walk out of an, a discussion with your wife? Is it that every time she brings something up, do you feel like she's questioning if you're capable, if you're good enough to do this kind of stuff? Do you question if you're loved or do you question, um, you know, if you're going to be safe? physically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, financially. So once you start to become more aware, then you can start to understand how your triggers go off and what works for you. I mean, I found a lot of times just breathing, taking a deep breath, 
helps a lot to be able to manage my reactions. Um, another thing I found is a, a great tool is anything you can do to get into your what I call your higher brain. Um, one fast way to do that, by the way, is math. If if you would take a million and count down from one million by seventeens, I'm going to bet you won't fight about whatever your wife is bringing up, <laughs> right? And one reason is because if you have to go into your high brain and start making sense of something that's more complicated, then all of a sudden you don't have time to just get into your low brain and fight or flight. One of the ways I do this, and there's a really interesting um, parallel to it in the court system. If you notice in courts, they have a lot of rules and a lot of uh, ways that you approach the bench, the ways that you, you're allowed to say what you want to say in the courtroom. They have so much structure and so many rules to to uh, obey and so much just protocol for how you handle the courtroom that I think the protocol itself keeps the people from fighting or flighting and reacting to each other. I mean, think about it. You have people in a court system that truly do not like each other. They hate each other, but there's so much process that, that is demanding their brain power. Otherwise, they lose the case, right? They, they'll get the judge mad at them, so they follow the protocol. And when you follow the protocol, the process is nice and slow and methodical, and the protocol keeps you from reacting, overly reacting to each other in the courtroom. I found the same is true in our, in our relationship. So we teach our couples when we're teaching them how to have a, have, to have a serious conversation that might normally set us off, that there's some protocols we're going to follow, we're going to learn to recognize each other emotion, each other's emotions. I call this getting real. Recognize the emotion. Explore the story behind it. Behind every emotion, there's a story. And if I can let the person that's I'm, that we're, I'm struggling with, that I'm arguing with, share their story without me jumping in and without me reacting to their emotion, and I explore their story, I'll be able to hear where they're really starving. Deep down in the story, you'll hear where they're really being affected. You'll hear if they have a lovable issue, if they have a capable issue, if they have a safety issue. I call that stuff the starve stuff. So we recognize their emotion. You seem upset. We explore the story. Tell me what's going on. And I attend to what they're saying. I really listen to where they're hurting. And then before I do all of those three things before I try to ever lift the conversation. And to lift the conversation, I try to do what I call – it's a very simple rule that I call the 80-20 rule. I believe in every discussion you have with another human being, 80 percent of what they're saying you agree with. I agree that the world is complicated today. I agree that, uh, you know, we didn't take care of America like we should have. I admit that uh, we – you know, I've been part of the problem. I accept. I I affirm. And you just – you go with them wherever they are, where you can go with them. And then you share your side, and I have a different side, and then you can tell your side. And I don't think that we should, you know, make everybody feel unsafe by saying certain things politically. Does that make sense? So we recognize emotion, we explore, we attend, and we lift conversations. They're skills, and they're skills you can learn. I'm teaching them every day, and you know what? You learn You learn to do it. This stuff works. Um, It's not a silver bullet, but it's a skill. And you can learn to do it. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, I think, for all of us. So great learnings, I think. Uh, That's why we do the show, to give you the tools, the information you need 
to live healthier, happier lives. We'll take a break. Stick with us. When we come back, we'll continue the journey of emotions. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Leadership has been uh, long treated as an art, a fuzzy philosophy based more on fads than on facts. That accounts for endless stream of game-changing management books that seem to come and go almost as rapidly as Paris fashions. It also explains why today's leadership guru is often more today's tomorrow's forgettable footnote. But effective leadership isn't an art. It's a science. Frederic Fabritius, neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group, is joining us this morning to discuss her ideas of in her book, uh, The Leading Brain, which will help us learn how to become better leaders and reach our full potential. Frederic, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you having me on the show. You bet. This is, um, to me, I love uh, studying leadership or an influence and how to influence people. But you're telling us science now and neuroscience, I guess, specifically is helping us understand uh, some traits that make people peak performers that leaders need to know about. Yes. And that's so exciting because we now have tools that are evidence-based. You know, it's not that I make up those ideas and say, I think it's a good idea you do this or that. We can actually measure brain activity and see what people can do to perform better. What, um, what are, um, g- give us an example of what neuroscience is finding out about the brain that helps us target and, and, and really lead others better. Yes. If you look at the brain while well, people are performing at their best, you have to look at a brain region that is called the prefrontal cortex. That's what we use for rational thinking and decision-making and logical thinking. And you need three substances to perform at your best. And I call this the DNA of peak performance. And you need all of these three substances in order to perform, to give your prefrontal cortex a boost. And they are called dopamine, noradrenaline, and acetylcholine. Um, I can, if you are interested, I can tell you about each of these substances and how they make us perform better. So, so these are actual um, brain chemicals. Dopamine, we, we yes. kind of know, know about. Was it was another one adrenaline? Noradrenaline. Noradrenaline. Positive stress hormone. Okay. So, and okay, yes. Yeah. So, get, get into those three chemicals. Talk us, talk to us about the the impact that just chemistry has on the brain there. Yes, if you look at dopamine, dopamine is released when we're having fun. It's part of the reward circuit in the brain. So when people are having fun at work, they perform better. And I'm not talking about the after work party. I'm really like if you as a radio host enjoy being a radio host, then you will do a better job because you will have the dopamine flow in your brain, which enhances brain performance by helping you to um, process information more quickly. It makes your um, prefrontal cortex more efficient. So So true. People should be having fun. Yeah. And then you have the noradrenaline, which is um, a little bit of healthy stress. So you need a challenge. Imagine you were to interview the same person every day. You would get bored Mm -hmm. unless it's a very interesting person. But, you know, after a while, you will have known all about that person. You need new challenges, new tasks. You always need to hire your stakes. So you need to be slightly over-challenged in order to perform well. And that's where the noradrenaline comes in. When we're a little bit nervous 
and a little bit afraid to fail. And when we have um, a big, bit of a challenge, not too much, then noradrenaline is released, and that also boosts our brain performance. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, as a leader, we, you know, there may have been a theory that you got to make your office fun. And I remember back in the dot com world, we wanted it fun, so everyone had. You know, we had foosball tables and ping pong tables, and it was a really laid back environment. But you're saying you need to have more than just fun to release dopamine. You also need to be slightly challenged. If you're too challenged, that probably just creates, you know, stress cortisol, I'm assuming. But but having the proper balance of of challenge makes noradrenaline. Yes, and I call it to be slightly overchallenged. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. You need to be a little bit. It needs to be the step of next development. It's, you don't. You step a little bit out of your comfort zone, and that's exactly where you need to be to learn and to grow as a person. That's great. And what was the third so one? It's not about uncontrollable stress. You know, it's not about having a slightly unfriendly boss. It's about having tasks that are challenging. Right. Um, and the third one is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a substance that is released when we have focused attention, when we are focused. And this is something that I see really deteriorating in many organizations because people are constantly checking emails and multitasking. And if you think of a concert piano player, a performing artist on stage, He's not going to check his emails while doing that. You can't get into the zone or flow or your sweet spot if you're distracted. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, so, so we, we may be creating unintentionally cultures and environments um, that, that chemically are upsetting us. Absolutely. And many people are in a threat state. Um, a threat state is a part of constant stress in the brain and we can see that it makes your prefrontal course work less efficient when we're in a stress straight state and i'm not talking about being challenged i really talk about you know being overwhelmed with work and distractions and unfriendly people our prefrontal cortex shuts down and we can't focus fully anymore interesting and then um it's funny it must be horrible because we don't even know why we're shutting down and it, I mean, it's but we just feel burdened because it's not fun, or we're not being stretched enough, um, or we're just we're we have too many interruptions, and yet our body is naturally just responding to that. And I, I guess the traditional philosophy would be, well, then you just need to you know hunker down and and suck it up and just focus more. But it's not about more focus, is it? No, and it's not going to help. What, I, what we can see with these, you know, everybody needs these three substances to perform well, but the conditions under which you reach your peak performance can be very different. Let's say, I, I don't know you very well. Yeah. I mean, first time we speak, but imagine you were one of these people that run a marathon at the weekend and you go bungee jumping on Monday and on Tuesday you fly to Japan and on Thursday you're back and... You know, if you're one of these people, and they're called sensation seekers because they often have a mutation in the dopamine system that makes them crave exciting things from the environment. If you're one of these people that are sensation and thrill seekers, you need a lot of pressure if you were to perform well. You, you probably, prior to an interview, you wouldn't read any information about that person so that you're a little bit stressed about not hmm. asking the right questions. 
You know, whereas a person who has less of that active dopamine system and who is more thriving on routines and regularity and the comfort of um, knowing what's going on, and these people have a different structure in the dopamine system, they will want to prepare as meticulously as, as possible. And you need to give people the possibility to create the work environment they need to perform. So you could be an equally good radio host by being a sensation seeker or by being a person who needs more structure. But hmm. you need a work environment that allows you to choose your settings. Do you, now, you call these um, – uh, these are neural signatures. Like we all have our own approach chemically for what drives us, what makes us a peak performer. And um, how, how do I know what mine is? How do I know my balance? Mm-hmm. Well, there are tests that you can take. For example, the um, neurocolor test by Helen Fisher. And it will tell you if you're a person with a more active dopamine system or a more active serotonin system, which is about um, more equilibrated work and more structure and routine. Um, this is something that you will also find out as soon as I tell you about this, you probably instantly realize it, whether you're more of a sensation seeker or less. Mm. And that's all you need to know. You need to, I think you feel, um, when an environment, a work environment is either too challenging or not challenging enough. And, and, and is, is that the are, only one? Yeah. Is that the only, uh, chemical we're trying to manage is whether it's I'm a thrill seeker or not. No, it's not. Okay. I mean, you can, I can give you um, a little bit of an overview of that. Yeah, do. Um, first of all, um, you know, there's the dopamine system, and we have discussed that already a lot. People who have a very active dopamine system, they constantly look for new challenges and new n- novelty. They're novelty seekers. Um, So that's the dopamine, and people defer to that degree also, whether they're more risk-taking or more safety-seeking. People with a very active dopamine system, they're always looking for risk-taking activities. They could be gambling or drinking. You know, I'm saying this without judgment. It doesn't have to be, but, you know, the probability is higher that you engage in those activities. And then, then we have the serotonin, and the serotonin is important for mood stability. I think... People might have heard about antidepressants that regulate the serotonin system because people who are depressed tend to have um, a serotonin system that is not active enough. Hmm. And you you change that by um, reducing the uptake of the serotonin uh, in the brain. So when people have a very active serotonin system, they are probably very stable, very reliable, very loyal. They like structures and routines. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, because in many organizations, there's a lot of emphasis on these thrill seekers. Right. Successful if you're always running and always trying to do the next best thing. This does not correlate with intelligence. We need all of these people. It's not, um, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker and still I, I manage to do things in a in a very pressure pressured work environment. It's about knowing who you are. You don't have to. But when I when I worked at McKinsey in the past in management consulting and I was surrounded by people who constantly like to travel seven days a week, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah. But this doesn't make me a stupid person. Right, you know? right what I'm trying to say. So it's all about um, finding the right balance. People with a very high serotonin system, they could 
when I ask um, executives, and I work a lot with executives, and I ask them, what kind of jobs would these people be good at? And they say, oh, nursery homes and bureaucratic stuff, and they sit somewhere where they just process boring data, and, you know, maybe Mm. kindergarten teacher, and I said, no. Nobel Prize winning researchers, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, you know, you need a certain uh, attention for detail and a certain perseverance in order to get some things done that require a larger attention span. And people with a high, um, with a very active serotonin system, they tend to be able to focus on a topic over a very long time and to really get into the details and to really know all the laws and regulations and to pay attention to detail. And that pays off when you write a book, for example. It's not possible to do that without a lot of editing and re-editing. Oh, it's horrible. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need, you need those skills. They're not wasted. And then another substance that is important is estrogen. People with a very active estrogen system in the brain, and it's a neurohormone, um, they tend to be very good at relationships, and they pay attention to other people's feelings, and there's a high empathy in these people, hmm. and also high verbal fluency, so you're able to express yourself very eloquently. And we tend to attribute so that to skill. women, right? Yet estrogen, men have estrogen in their system. Exactly. And they are men with a very active estrogen system, and they often are writers, you know, and they have professions where they can excel at these skills. Yeah. It's not limited to women, but traditionally we see estrogen as a female sex hormone when in reality men have it too. Hmm. And then we have testosterone, funny enough, that's the, you know, the counterpart, and that's about logical, rational thinking. There's a certain tough-mindedness to people with an active testosterone system. There's a certain drive and a certain desire to, to have power as well associated. They have a good spatial orientation. So, you know, these four systems, the dopamine, the serotonin, the estrogen, and the testosterone system, we all have these four. You know, there's not a person who doesn't have testosterone. Right, right. But we, we are different to the degree to which we express um, those um, substances. And they make up our, what Helen Fisher calls, neural signature. Hmm. And we need to know our neural signature if we want to, to know how to move forward. We're speaking with Frederique Fabritius, and she's walking us through um, some information in her, from her book, The Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue discussing this neural signature and how we figure out and understand ourselves, as well as how do we lead others. It's a science-based approach to leadership instead of, you know, just a concept. Now the concepts are being proven out by neuroscience. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Frederique Fabritius. She's the leading neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group and is an executive coach, leadership specialist, 
with extensive expertise working with top executives from multinational corporations like Bayer, Audi, Montblanc, uh, Ernst & Young. I mean, I think she's 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 touching them all. And as a leadership, uh, I, I used to do some leadership consulting, and it's interesting – I think what, Frederic, you're bringing us is finally um, – and, and this is happening in, I think, a lot of areas. Neuroscience is catching up with all of these these philosophies and assumptions we've made about humans. Exactly. And it's uh, – you know, um, my mother, she said to me when I started out doing this, she said, you know, these are all things that your grandmother probably would have told people to do, you know, <laughs> workouts sleep well, be friendly to your co-workers, increase trust and fairness. But the reason why people now buy in into that stuff is because I can explain why it's good to do so. And somehow that makes a difference. Right. Well, it makes sense, too, because um, because these are chemical issues. You can see why um, a woman having a baby would upset uh, chemistry or potentially upset it, or a, a man suffering from a uh, you know a cancer treatment could totally restart and reshift chemicals in their bodies. So it's almost like we're we're more of a, f- a flowing fluid uh, thing than we are this static human being. If our chemistry oh. changes, we change. That's so true. And also, I'd like to add, it's so important that we understand this body-mind connection. Mm. That might sound esoteric, but oh, yeah. it's not. There's, you know, people used to think it's a one-way road. You feel sad, and then you may have a bad, um, sad body posture or a sad face. But it's the other way around as well. It's a two-way road. So if we have um, a good body posture... Or if we put a smile on our face, this will also put us um, into a better mood. Mm, That's right. Because our brain picks up signals from the body. And when your body is relaxed, your mind will relax. And we've talked about that. Yeah, body posture, uh, Amy Cuddy's work um, through Harvard. But I guess this is is something I've always wondered. And Frederic, here you are to answer it. Um, So really... My thoughts could generate my chemistry is what you're saying, but simultaneously my chemistry could generate my thoughts. Um, If, for example, if I have a lot of testosterone on board, I guess that's what would make me more consistently tough-minded, power-oriented, driving, driving, driving people. Um, Yes. Now, what would happen if – for some reason, you know, you hit 55 or whatever and your testosterone levels start to drop, Does do people start to wonder if your personality is changing? Is this a midlife uh, crisis? It's a very good point. Um, it's a very good point. As people get older, testosterone level drops and also dopamine levels go down mm. and people become less of a sensation seeker and are more um, oriented towards routine. To give you an example, in a nursery home, if you change the lunch schedule and you say, today we serve lunch one hour earlier or later, people will get very upset. Yeah. They get very confused. They will really experience this as a stressful situation. Whereas if you tell a 20-year-old person, you know, um, dinners one hour later, they're going to say, like, whatever. You know, yeah, now right, later, right. Now early, I'm going to survive. People are more, there are two things that happen when we get older. We get more um, 
adapt to, to routines. We, we are less able to adapt to constantly changing challenges. And we also become less of power seekers due to the drop in testosterone. Hmm. So we don't care so much anymore about always being, you know, the best. And <laughs> it's, um, it's, it can be a good change. The good thing is that there are things you can do to prevent from that to happen. Okay. Exercise really boosts your dopamine levels. And that will boost your testosterone level. So those chemical substances, they always interact. They're not active in isolation. How do you, so exercise boosts dopamine and testosterone. How would you suggest you boost serotonin? Also exercise. You know, it has been shown that exercising every day for an hour is just as effective as an antidepressant. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, these antidepressants that have an, um, that um, interact with your serotonin system, exercise is just as efficient because what exercise does, it boosts all of your neurochemicals. Hmm. Do you worry, um, I, I just, I actually just did a workshop on anxiety and anxiousness and um a lot of the people's pushback is they just don't want to start going down the chemical track. And I guess my question is, the minute you start injecting or putting some new chemicals in to like maybe you know manage the serotonin levels, oh yeah, it's a system, and all of a sudden it could start impacting every other system. Oh, you're so right. And you know what happens, for example, when people take um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the new um, SSRIs, yeah. Yeah. If people take that, it will have an impact on their dopamine system and it will suppress dopamine. And what happens when dopamine is suppressed? People don't fall in love as easily Mm. anymore. People don't take risks anymore. People have less fun people are less curious to explore new things. So your mood might be stable, okay? But it's kind of gray. You don't have ups and downs anymore, which is a good thing if you plan to kill yourself, you know? It's right. better to have a to stable have the, mood and right. not have a, you know. But if people take these medications over a long period without really having serious, serious problems, it will have a very negative impact on the other chemical systems and they will have less joy in life. Mm. I, I know an artist that uh, ended up taking an SSRI and it amazingly, it stopped their depression. They, you know, they weren't having the depressive thoughts, but they also were no longer driven to create their art. Yes, and dopamine is very much linked to artistic drive. We can't be creative without dopamine, and there's also no drive to be creative. It's, it's like we don't care anymore. Now, when there's a lack of dopamine, it's a little bit of whatever, you know, I could do that or I could not. You lack the drive to be creative. Yeah. Talk about, um, so we we could go figure out what our neural signature is, um, and then, you know, what else I guess is f- fascinating for me, Frederick, is why are we not, um, it seems like doctors should maybe be more on the forefront of this. And when you do come in with, you know, drive issues or other issues, figuring out and managing chemistry better and, and figuring out, yeah, you know what, your testosterone level is really low, your estrogen level is really high, this is going on, this is going on. It seems like it could be a really major tool that would help in mental health management and even just life management. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to know who you are. 
Um, very often I have people coming, you know, executives that say, oh, I'm so stressed. Can you help me with my emotional regulation? You know, do you have techniques so I don't get so angry anymore in stressful situations? The first thing I ask is, you know, why do you want to do that? What's your work environment like? If you have a bad boss and your wife tries to divorce you at home, no wonder you're stressed. You should be you stressed. Know, you should be stressed. So it's not about trying to stay zen and then have a million mindfulness techniques so you stay calm no matter what. First, try to solve the situation. Yeah. And when you know who you are and when you know what you need, then you can adapt your environment to fit your needs. You shouldn't change yourself. You should try to change your environment. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and start leading your environment. I mean, really, one little turn, one little change in your environment, getting maybe you back to your passion might reignite more of that dopamine and all of a sudden you're back on the dopamine train. Absolutely. You're so right. So very often it's, you know, people are in the wrong work environment and you need to control that and, and, and feel. And, and, and also what has been shown is that when people take charge of their life, so when people take an active approach to solving their problems, um, cortisol is reduced and dopamine goes up and uh, people feel less stressed. Yeah. So, you know what? That's – I guess that's that's the key to this. Well, Frederick, we – you know, we appreciate you acting, knowing, learning about our brains, our science, our, our, uh, our chemistry. Powerful stuff. The name of the book, The, Le- uh, the Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Frederick Fabritius is, uh, is the author of it. Great uh, insight, great work. Folks, you can't get ahead of yourself enough. I mean, to, to now start taking these feelings and driving them down to a chemical level, that's power. Power in your own uh, life. We'll take a break, come back. We'll be discussing, uh, we'll be talking with McKenna Baus, the mind bender. Stick with us. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know. Now. McKenna Bouse is in the house. McKenna is our mind bender, and today she's going to help us by, uh, bend a little bit of our stress away. Hopefully, that that is the You're goal. You're going to help us de-stress. Yeah, we all need that. I need that. I need it, like right now. Okay, help me. Well, here we go. So a lot of times when you're really stressed, people you know say, "Hey, it's not as bad as you think. It's fine. It's Relax. Fine. You'll be okay." They have you think like, you know, think of the, the positive side of this. Like, how is this going to be good for you? <laughs> and you know that that works. That's a neat thought for maybe you know thirty seconds. Right, right. And then you're just like, "Crap, what's and going on?" <laughs> wondering I can't. where you're going to go from there. Yeah. Um. But there's sort of this new approach that uh, was put out in the Harvard Business Review that's saying, you know, when you're stressed, one of the best ways you can get over that stress fast and just move forward is to force yourself to start going through the worst case scenario. Yeah, I've heard of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always call it the so then what? Yeah. Because then then you have to deal with, okay, well, well, yeah, well, she'll break up with me. So then what? Yeah. Well, then we'll be, you know, then we'll be divorced. So then what? Well, I guess it'd be horrible. Yeah, and then what would you do? Exactly. It forces the hand. 
It really does. So the, but the science is saying maybe you ought to look at the worst case scenario. Yeah. And so the the reason behind that is, you know, they sort of make the argument that pressure and stress are not the same thing. But pressure turns into stress when you add rumination to oh. it. When you sit there and you think things over mm-hmm. all the time and you t- start to catastrophize. Yeah, and worry and, about it. Exactly. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And the idea is your worst case scenario that you think of right now is probably a whole lot better then your worst case scenario, you're going to be thinking of, you know, down the road. Down the road. Right. And right. so what you do is when you're f- starting to feel that pressure and you can feel that, you know, stress is coming on and it's building a little much, you pause, you say, okay, you know, if I bomb this presentation, how bad is it really going to be? Right. And, you know, you're like, well, my boss will be really disappointed. I might not get that raise. That'd be, you know, that really stink, but I'm pretty much at the same place I am right now. Yeah. And so at that point, you're like, okay, and it's a lot easier to deal with. And it stops you from ruminating because you've already set that sort of end point of where that worst case is going to be. And that pressure doesn't turn into stress. Right. But if you hold on to it and you keep thinking about it faster, 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 all of a sudden that worst case scenario turns into I lose my job and I'm living on the street and I can't feed my kids right. and you're a mess. Well, our last guest even said the mere fact that you act on it and start acting on it immediately creates a dopamine and a serotonin push. Yeah. So you start medicating by by acting on it. So if, if you're going to have negative thoughts, maybe the way you act on it is you, you just figure out what's the worst case scenario. Really. You control it. And what would I do? Yeah. You write the narrative. Yeah. And you do it while you're still, you know, in control of your line of thought. Because once you get to that point of stress where things are really bad, yeah. it's a lot harder to regain control of your thinking and to get rational. That Because rumin- ruminating, I'm telling you, that tips over so many people. Yeah, it's the worst. Well, especially you have a lot of time to think. And some people are um, what we call higher sensitive. They're people that just naturally are going to take in more of this stress. Mm-hmm. And, and if they can't get it out of them, yeah. then where is it going to go but just keep circulating in their head? Yeah. I feel like this is sort of the equivalent of, you know, when you have ate some really bad food mm-hmm. and you start feeling sick and you don't want to be sick, but sometimes it's a little better to just get it out yeah. of your system. Oh, no. How many times have I said, I just got to throw this up? Yeah. I just got to throw it up. You, you just got to be done. Yeah. And so it's sort of like oh, doing no, that I'm going to keep stress. it down. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to keep it down another couple hours. It's going to be worse. Yeah. And so this is just get it out of your system. And that's a pretty graphic example. But but I think it works. It's true. <laughs> it's totally true. So let's take it to Jeff. Jeff, can you see a day that you would just, instead of you know being optimistic, it might be better for you to just go ask, go look at the worst case scenario? See, I feel like that's more of my wife's job, and I I tend to be a little more optimistic. I wouldn't even say optimistic. I I think it's just a matter of wanting to put off anything that's negative. Yeah, or you, know, you want to go to that happy place. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe I don't need to because she does that, and we're a good balance. But does does she ruminate? So will she just keep spinning the negative story in her head? Um, yeah, but again, I wouldn't say she's so negative as she is realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. See, I don't have to do it because so, we balance so what each you do, other out. But what you do next time she brings up the issue like, so what if this and this happens? Then I always, as a, when I'm coaching people, I'm already like, so what if it does? Let's just go there and solve it. So tell me what you'd do. And then they start wrapping their head around it. And all of a sudden they realize, well, I'll, I'd get over it, I guess. I mean, I'd have to fix it. 
But every once in a while, we just are resolved to the fact that we we have trials. Yeah, we know that it happens to everybody. And uh, the, whatever this whatever this example is, you're talking about. This is our next one. Yeah, and we just get through it. Yeah. And by the way, you got through it before. You'll get through it again. Yeah. Worst case scenario, McKenna, you did it. Yeah. You just you just bent our brains out of shape. That's what Sometimes I try to do. Sometimes you don't need to avoid it and be positive. Just go to the worst case scenario and think your way through it. What exactly. would I do? Exactly. McKenna Bouse, Bouse in the house, the mind bender. Thanks, McKenna. You can catch McKenna on our all of our social media as well. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's the house of Bouse. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Life is full of pressure. Have you noticed it? Just enough to stress you out and make life kind of difficult. Um, But the reality is, and and we, we hear more and more, that people are feeling more stress more anxiety, more people are being diagnosed with anxiety. And yet, how can that be, right? I mean, is life just that much more stressful or are we just losing our grip? Are we losing our ability to find the peace amidst all of the pressure? So I I actually, um, I've had a really weird experience with this. So I have a lot of clients. I teach um, marriage skills, conflict resolution skills, teach them how to communicate, and, and strengthen their relationship. But I found a lot of couples, what they're struggling with is one member of the relationship or the, or the partnership, one of them may have more anxiety than the other. And that anxiety plays out in really strange ways in the marriage. They, they, you may have a partner that worries about a lot of stuff. You may have a partner that might be more introverted and doesn't want to go to every party that uh, you want to go to, or they stress about it and they, they would rather stay home and read a book and, you know, watch Netflix and hang out. And you might be thinking, what is your deal? It's, this isn't fun. This isn't the way to live. We can't always worry about everything. So how do we manage the anxiety if we're going through it? Um, as, as, and, and I created a workshop for it and um, put it on my website, uh, uh, matttownsend.com. But the workshop is really about how we figure out how to get through it. So let's talk a little bit about what anxiety is and what you can do about it. Anxiety, by the way, is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, physical changes like increased blood pressure. Everyone, by the way, should experience anxiety, right? If I drop a cobra in your cubicle, you should experience some stress, right? Very natural thing. You should have the worries. The difference with anxiety disorders or people that have an anxiety disorder is their anxiety is is kind of, it's constant, it's permanent, about 18% of the U.S. population, 25% of adolescents ages 13 to 18, 18% of adults suffer uh, and experience anxiety above and beyond, just a natural state of stress. And so it, it's a big deal. Now, one thing to remember, though, is not all stress is bad. And that's one of the downsides to trying to deal with anxiety is 
a lot of us would just rather go medicate our stress and take drugs, take anything we can to to not have to engage um, or just avoid life. But the problem with it is a lot of your greatest growth in life is going to take place when there's a little stress on board. So you got to know that there's this one type of stress called eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, which is a very helpful type of stress. 77% of Americans regularly experience physical symptoms caused by stress. 73% of Americans regularly experience psychological symptoms caused by stress. And 76% of Americans cited that money and work as the leading causes of their stress. Now, interestingly... Um, stress is a healthy type of stress. So the way this works is stress would be the fact that you love your job and you, you know, you, you have to pick up your game. You have to work really hard. You focus on going and doing that really big presentation and sure you're a little stressed out on the way there, you're stressed out, but then you hit a home run and life is great. That stress is called eustress. That is the healthy stress. And if you have enough of it in your life, you feel energized. You feel focused, right? You feel excited about life. You really feel like your work is, is, produces results. That's the good stress. If you have too much of that going on in life, that's called distress. You start to get anxious, fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown. So at in some point in our lives, we have to know when we're moving from the good stress to the unhealthy stress. So think about it like think about it like physical exercise. Nobody necessarily loves to feel the stress of running on a treadmill, but once you've but once you've kind of gotten in shape and you can run on a treadmill and maybe put in thirty or forty minutes on a treadmill, that is a good amount of stress that helps keep you healthier. If you don't ever want to have that experience of feeling the stress of a treadmill, then you could fall into kind of an unhealthy state where you're not challenged, you can't do things, you can't even live at an optimal level, or you could actually spend too much time on the treadmill and it becomes distressful and makes you less healthy. So life is about balance, right? So how do we do that? How do we get into life to a point that... We, we can balance this anxiety and this stress. So think about your own existence. Do you, do you look forward to your work? Do you look forward to your work day? Do you dread it? Do you have this feeling of uh, just doom and gloom? There's no one way to, um, to kind of assume that uh, you're just – you have an anxiety disorder unless you start looking at how your day plays out. Do you, do you have dread? Do you have fear? Do you always wonder what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you wonder what – do you worry about things that you said yesterday and maybe obsess about it and think about it many times today? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? If you can't let go of yesterday and you're always worried about tomorrow, you're probably going to feel more and more stress. And stress is normal, right? Think about it. If you naturally spend a lot of time in tomorrow, you should feel stressed because the problem with tomorrow is you can't live tomorrow. So you can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call it anxiety if you want. You can call it stress. I don't call it anxiety usually. I call it worry. I don't call it fear. I don't call it concern. These are all words you may have, apprehension, unease, agitation, angst, tension, you might have the, the dem dare jitters, but the reality is you probably have worry. 
And how do you handle worry? Uh, let me give you just a few of my favorite little tricks about worry, okay? And I promise they work. Number one way on earth to manage your worry, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit, is the fact that um, you got to breathe. When people are stressed, your breathing changes. Think about it. If all of a sudden you heard somebody, you're walking down an, eye, an alley in downtown New York and somebody you know, starts a chainsaw behind you, your body is going to kick into some natural fight or flight mode. When that fight or flight mode is on, your, bre- your body is going to start breathing differently, probably more shallow breathing. Right. Because you got to get enough oxygen going, but you got to get that heart pumping. You're going to breathe shallow. You don't have time to take enormous, big, deep breaths. Your body will tighten up. And as you tighten up and get ready to start running, game on. And that's what happens to a lot of people. If I if I told you today that you're going to have to be on national television in front of three million people and talk about something. That might stress you out. And what you'll notice happens immediately, your breathing changes. You don't tend to breathe as deeply. You don't tend to uh, get as much oxygen in your system. And when that's going on, you feel stress. The natural byproduct of not breathing enough is stress. If I sat on your chest, it would stress you out, I'm pretty sure. It would stress you out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had – remember back in the day, your friend would sit on top of you and hold your arms down, and all of a sudden you start freaking out. And you can't breathe. I can't breathe. You start hyperventilating. That's what happens when worry kicks in. So the number one tool is to learn active breathing techniques. And there, it's hard to teach. It's really not because it's, it's easier to see, I think, healthy breathing. But all you have to do is go to YouTube and look up active breathing, and there are incredible tools online to start learning how to breathe Deeply, I learned as a as a journalist um, and and an anchor, a television reporter, anchor. Right before I would go on air, I would always take a deep cleansing breath. I try to fill my lungs up with air. I try to hold it, and then I would breathe it out slowly. And when I did that, amazingly, I got rid of the jitters. The jitters literally just disappeared, and they disappear because once your body's oxygenated, you don't need to feel the worry. Many believe 80% of anxiety issues can be managed just simply by breathing, more effective, healthy breathing. Another tool that is so powerful for you is your brain and where you put your thoughts. So once you start to notice your worry, a lot of us start arguing about the worry. I had a great story with my son once where um, he had a little social anxiety and he didn't want to go to his, this guitar performance class we had signed him up for. He asked to go to this class, just so you know. It wasn't parents forcing him. He wanted to go to it until it was time to go. Then he started giving us a bunch of lip and story like, I don't want to go. These people, I don't even know these people. I'm not going to learn anything. I don't want to go for two days. And what if it's stupid? I, I want to go with my friends. And they, we had a million things that he was bringing up. When you start to feel worry, you tend to bring up a lot of nonsense, the things that he doesn't like. Well, what if these people aren't there? A lot of what ifs, a lot of you know possible things that might happen, a lot of the teacher's stupid. They don't understand me. I don't want to go to school. This is stupid. Scouts are stupid. <laughs> Whatever you try to get your kids to do that they don't want to do. Um, in the end, don't take the bait. Don't fight over all of these things that aren't the real issue. This had nothing to do with 
every excuse my son was giving me for why he didn't want to go to the guitar class. It was his worry. His social worry was kicking in. So what I learned to talk with him about is, son, this is your worry kicking in, isn't it? You're just worried. So how are you going to handle your worry? There's only one question you need to worry about when it comes to your worry. It's how you're going to handle your worry. Don't fight about whether you should do it. You've already committed to do it. We've already paid the money. So I basically told him, we've already paid the money. You are going to this camp, this guitar camp, for two days. You're going. So the only question we need to figure out is, how are you going to handle your worry? And then we can start worrying about how we handle the worry. And by doing that, I force my son to deal with his worry instead of making up a bunch of stories that aren't the real issue. Does that make sense? Then I just have to give him a bunch of tools to handle the worry, one of which is breathing. Let's practice our breathing. Another thing we can worry about or practice is our thinking. What are we thinking about? Give me some things that you know that, of how this will work for you. I just coached a person on, that had to give a really big speech, and they were, very, they were terrified about having to give the speech. And they're worried that they're going to break into hives. They're worried that their face is going to go red. And I'm like, okay, so great. So let's imagine you get up there and you uh, – I go, have you ever broken into hives before doing a speech? She's like, no. But I've seen somebody break into hives and it was horrible. So you've never seen or noticed you broke into hives? No. So if that's the case, what are the odds you'll break into hives? Well, I don't know, but I don't want to risk it. Let's say you did break into hives. Could you wear clothes that would make it so you didn't – no one could see your neck breaking into hives? Well, yeah, I've got this really nice blouse that could cover – great. Let's wear that. What else would happen if you started getting worried and your face turned red? What else could you do? And we started talking about solutions for how they could handle it. And amazingly, once you start to address the issues that you can handle, a lot of times your worries kick down, Right. One of the rules about talking and dealing with your worry is focus where you have influence and power to influence. Don't just focus on what you're concerned about. If you focus on your concerns, your concerns tend to grow. If you focus on where you have influence, your ability to influence it grows. I remember giving a speech once after uh, in, a, in, a, in a speaking class in, in college and um, saw somebody really having a physical breakdown in the middle of their speech. And then I went and gave my speech, and immediately after my speech, I ran to the restroom, and I looked at myself in the mirror because I wanted to see if I was experiencing or showing, demonstrating any of the physiological effects of a breakdown. And I got this confirmation that I wasn't. I was a little sweaty, but I wasn't red-faced. I wasn't breaking into hives. I wasn't – my eyes weren't bulging. I wasn't hyperventilating. And once I got that fixed in my brain, I could then know that for me, I don't respond that way. And that gave me more and more power. One of the, another powerful way to manage your anxiety is to recognize it. Call it that. Say it out loud. Wow, I'm feeling worried. Because you're, you're going to have to see it sometime, right? Once you start to see that you're feeling the worry and, and owning the label of it, then you actually can you can do something more about it. Another powerful tool to managing anxiety is simply um, staying present, because our inclination is to. And you'll notice a lot of your worry is going to come from your past or your future, worrying about what might happen, worrying about what did happen. 
the more I can stay in the now and work on what I can work on, it creates some powerful, powerful stuff. Another thing I teach in my uh, worry program and my anxiety program is that you need to build what I call your calmness code. There are certain things that build more calmness, right? And I need to know what my code is. And so over my lifetime, I've been figuring out, I know before I do a big event or a big speech, sleep helps me. I know that I need to be prepared. I need to know my stuff. I need to trust and believe in my abilities. I need to think back to all of my successful experiences. And as I build my own code, I know I need to probably not have caffeine on board. Uh, or sometimes that will create more anxiety for me. I know I need to have some good, healthy food in me. I also know before I speak, I can't have just eaten. So I've learned all of these little tricks uh, before I speak. And I now what's interesting is because I speak so much, like two or three times a week, and get paid to speak, It's um, it changes. It changes your confidence level. It changes who you are. I remember being terrified uh, I was the youngest presenter for a, a major training company called Franklin Covey Company, and um, I was this young punk that would go out and try to figure out, you know, I'm going to go speak for this company, and I'm, I'm, you know, half the age of a lot of people in the room. And I remember having to just get my position clear, and I, I remember thinking, you know what, I just need to remember that this, none of this is about me. Nobody came here, and I, I used to write this on the, the, the little workbooks I would teach from, uh, my, my facilitator manual. I would write the phrase, Matt, nobody came here to see you. Just deliver the message. Just teach the principles. And I found a lot of peace in that. Nobody was there. Nobody traveled to go to a public workshop to see Matt Townsend when I was supposed to be teaching the seven habits of highly effective people. Just deliver the principles. And I found that when I lost myself by consciously putting myself in a different reframe, it worked. Amazingly, it works. And that's the cool thing about uh, worry. It, it can be your guide. It can tell you that you need to pay attention. And it doesn't need to, it doesn't need to own you. And the powerful thing about it is once you start to take your life back and not let the worry or the anxiety dominate, you have now conquered something that is huge. And now you can start to offer your greatest offerings in the world because you've conquered. You've conquered your weakness. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, my friends. You can find out more. Just just look up the show, The Matt Townsend Show or matttownsend.com. Tons of material out there, all free, just here to help. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. We have heard the news stories regarding people shooting at drones and they, you know, that they see above their property or organizations asking that drones not be used on their property. Although drones were once used only by the military, they are now taking on a new role in society, such as dropping off packages at the front door. That's the ultimate goal, right? Are drones the future? Here to speak with us today is Michael Brosh, a professor of electrical engineering at The Ohio State University and an expert on drone safety issues. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, just just one one minor note. I'm actually with Ohio University, which is a oh. sister university down the road. But, you know what? Oh, uh, yeah. boy. Yeah, let's, let's get that you. right. I don't know why they said the Ohio State, because that them is fighting words out there. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a common mistake. Oh, no thank you. Well, sorry about that. Now, Michael, talk to me about uh, drones, because we hear we hear Google, um, we hear Amazon, we hear UPS. Drones are the future. They could save millions and millions of dollars of gas and, you know, you know, access uh, to getting getting product and and uh, packages to people. Is, is this real? Is this going to happen, do you think, in the future or is this kind of just a pipe dream? Well, it, it's it's going to happen eventually, but certainly in the near term, there are uh, numerous other value-added services that drones can and are doing. Uh, the delivery aspect is is something that everybody can, you know, it's exciting and people can uh, can can visualize that. But there are you know numerous other uh, things that drones are doing today uh, that are providing value to our society. Give us an example. What are some what are some of the things drones are doing now? I guess military we we kind of know they've got a corner on the some of the military market. What else are drones doing that are providing service real time right now? Sure. Well, one of the uh, one of the most common applications is uh, aerial photography. Uh and one of the uh, well there's numerous uh, applications there, but uh one of the most common ones is in uh, real estate. Yeah. Uh, and you know, historically, you would have had to be stuck with just uh, photographs that the uh, agent took on the ground because, uh, you know, getting an airplane or a helicopter nearby would have been just uh, prohibitively expensive. But uh, now, with drones, you can put one of these things up a uh, hundred feet above the house and take some really beautiful photos and put that in the listing. In fact, I have friends that have a business and they do this and they'll, they can fly the drone through the house. It can take, I mean, if it's a big enough house and, uh, or the business. And they also, um, there's some pretty cool things I'm imagining they could use it for with law enforcement. I mean, it seems like there's, there's kind of, no end to it, but then all of a sudden there's a lot of laws and a lot of rights that these drones could uh, infringe upon. Yes, well, that's been the concern uh, pretty much from the beginning, and, and I've actually seen a, a, a big shift in, uh, in the, the perception and just, just the way drones have been portrayed in the, in the uh, general press and the media, for example, uh, now, five, six, seven years ago, uh, drones were associated solely with military surveillance, and 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 the word spy was almost always used with the word drone. Uh, but then, you know, as we've seen in the last five or six years, uh, with particularly with the proliferation of consumer drones, uh, folks have started to see that. Oh, well, wait a minute. You know, these things can be used for other purposes. Having said that, though. Uh, the privacy concerns are certainly uh, certainly not to be taken lightly. And one of the things we've kind of talked about on the show is like regulating these. Who's who's in charge of regulation, and sh- should these drones have to face the same, 
you know, scrutiny as a helicopter um, and because they can cross into airspace, they can interfere with uh, with other with with airplanes, with helicopters. T- talk about who governs the drones. Well, and that's a that's an excellent question. Um, what has typically been the case uh, with manned aircraft, both well, fixed wing airplanes in particular, uh, helicopters uh, somewhat as well, uh, is that there there's generally a, a minimum altitude uh, below which a manned aircraft cannot descend. Uh, and, you know, it's generally speaking, just, just kind of roughly speaking, it's 500 feet above unpopulated areas and 1,000 feet above populated areas. And this has been put into, you know, the federal regulations for, for many decades and, and primarily for, for the, uh, uh, just for the comfort and safety of the people on the ground. Well, uh, with drones, of course, uh, the vast majority of the applications that we're talking about, particularly aerial photography, uh, you know, you need to be closer to the ground. And in fact, for safety purposes, you'd rather have the drones and the manned aircraft separated. Right. So whereas the manned aircraft may be at you know 500 feet or below, above, the drones most likely are, are more most of the time are going to be 500 feet or below uh, just to keep them separated. Now, uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is still in charge of airspace, uh, but when you start to get in close proximity to uh, property, then you you start to get into issues of property owners' rights and and, uh, and things of that nature. Yeah. Does um, – I, I guess – Overall, though, because we've kind of gone from just a remote control flying airplane or a flying helicopter, which I guess would have been a drone, to now um, a real classified drones that are even able now apparently to pick up and carry packages is when there's got to be a ton of engineering issues with trying to fly a drone, like UPS had a video that came out of a UPS truck, and they can load the drone uh, packages onto the drone from the truck. They can fly the drone to a bunch of different places. And um, but how? What are the laws that would involve actually delivering packages? Because isn't it? Don't you have to fly uh, line of sight? Uh, you have to be able to see your drone in order to 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 fly it. Isn't that the law? Well, current, currently that's the case, with, with very few exceptions. Yes, you're ab- absolutely correct. In, in the United States, uh, the only uh, commercial operate well, for the most part, the only commercial operations that are permitted are exactly what you said. The drone has to be, uh, has to be within the line of sight of the operator on the ground. And, you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're a real estate agent doing aerial photography of a listing, that's no problem. Yeah. But as you mentioned, uh, you know that's not going to get you very far for package delivery. Right. And so, yeah, you've you've absolutely nailed the one of the critical issues uh, that uh, that the community is facing, and that is how to safely enable these so-called beyond visual line of sight operations. Basically, when the drone is flying far enough away that the operator can't see it anymore, and that's what has to be done for uh, you know for effective. Uh, meaningful package delivery and the issues involved there are how do you get the uh, drone to you know keep from 
crashing into something else, yeah. either a person or an obstacle or, or another airplane. I mean, it does have like four blades spinning, so um, it's kind of a dangerous thing. Sure, you're going to get your pizza, but you might also, you know, become a victim of a drone. Is I guess this is your job then, huh, Michael, that you, you and your engineers and, uh, you know, computer science experts, avionic engineers, they have to solve these problems before this can ever be a reality. Indeed, and and it's something that uh, we and our you know colleagues in the industry have been working on for for quite a while now. It turns out that uh, it's it's not a trivial problem by any stretch. We oh. we uh, have you know humans in in manned aircraft, and and you know as long as the weather is good. If the weather's bad, of course you got air traffic control radar, that kind of thing. But if you're if you're in good weather, it's up to the human, the pilot, in the cockpit to the the word the phrase is see and avoid. You have to see other aircraft in the vicinity, and then do the common sense thing. Obviously, avoid them. Well, how do you get a how do you get a, a machine to do that? It turns out it's it's quite difficult, uh, and we have various technologies of radar and lasers and camera-based systems and things like that. And each one has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and you know there are systems being put together which leverage all these sensors, but they tend to be large and heavy and expensive. Uh, which, if you're if you're a large drone, that's fine. You you can accommodate that. But trying to put this onto a small drone uh, turns out to be quite a challenge. Is it uh, so? Are are you seeing that these companies are investing a lot of money in solving these problems, or are they? Is this just kind of a PR idea that they keep putting out there? Well, no, there's definitely there's definitely investment going on, and uh, you see, you know, practically on a weekly basis, you see announcements in the industry of of various uh, uh, sense and avoid type technologies that are either being under development or test or uh, things of that nature. So the the industry is certainly taking this very seriously. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break and continue this discussion in a few minutes. We're speaking with Michael Brosh. He is a professor at the Russ College of Engineering and Technology at Ohio University and is uh, an electrical engineering, computer science, avionics um, professor there and is is walking us through all we need to know about drones and, and the reality of them someday delivering anything to your front porch without, you know, creating a problem for you and the family. Interesting stuff, folks. It is the future. Stick with us. We'll be back. Continue the discussion here. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking drones and drone package delivery. What would it actually take to get a package, you know, to fly on a drone from a truck, a UPS truck, let's say, maybe a couple miles to your house and safely deliver the package on your porch? Is that possible? Well, joining us is uh, Michael Brosh. Michael is a professor of electrical engineering at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. He's been conducting navigation systems research for the past 30 years, and for the past 50 years, his research has included drones. He's also a licensed professional engineer um, as well as an instrument-rated commercial pilot, so he helps us uh, 
He also, you know, understands the aviation issues as well. So, Michael, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So as far as the ability to deliver a package, there are drones big enough to pick them up to carry them. But uh, one of the problems is to uh, avoid the obstacles. What are some solutions that you've seen in the engineering world coming out that might help the ability to, uh, to do that without, you know, hitting an obstacle? Well, there's a couple of, uh, couple of things that we uh, are looking at. One, uh, for uh, en route navigation, where you're just trying to get from point to point, is to uh, is essentially to fly uh, at a sufficiently high altitude that you're, uh, you don't have any uh, obstacles to worry about. Essentially, you're above the trees and buildings, that kind of thing. The, the hard part is, is when you're taking off and landing, uh, and that's where you're obviously in close proximity to, to all of these kinds of obstacles. And, and uh, you know, we have three primary types of uh, sensors that we use uh, in that regard. Uh, one is radar. Uh, one is a, a, a laser version of radar that we call uh, a LIDAR. And then uh, the third type is essentially conventional uh, camera systems. Mm. They're referred to as electro-optic systems, but basically they're just fancy cameras. So then you've got to watch the camera and make sure you're noticing the power line. But a LIDAR, I guess, or a radar would pick up uh, power lines, it would pick up trees, and then the, the, uh, I guess the computer on board would just navigate it through those obstacles. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, uh, the the tricky part in this is to you know process the data that the sensor is providing uh, and make sure that you are correctly identifying the obstacles that are nearby, and then also making sure that you're not being uh, bothered by what we call false alarms if the if the sensor erroneously says, "Oh, there's a you know there's an obstacle out there," when there isn't, then that that can you know, obviously cause some disruptions as well. It turns out that each of these sensors has you know has strengths and differences. Not surprisingly, a, a, a laser-based system uh, is not going to work very well in in certain kinds of smoky and foggy conditions, mm. whereas a radar can see right through that. So. Uh, the, basically, the the long term solution is is going to be an integration of of two or three of these sensors in order to get a, a more complete picture of what's actually around you. But then, I guess you're also talking cost, right? Because then everything you add to this and weight, uh, so these then have to be bigger and bigger drones. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, that's that's the catch. Yeah, exactly. The, every, every time you add on a new sensor, you are adding size, weight, power, and, and cost uh, requirements onto the thing. Uh, one uh, aspect of the sensor development that's that's we're going to benefit from is uh, the work on autonomous uh, vehicles. Huh. So they have you know similar concerns of size, weight, power, uh, and it's a potentially a much, much larger market. So uh, what, what I'm anticipating happening is that sensors being developed for the uh, autonomous uh, uh, automobile market will, and we'll be able to leverage that uh, in, the, uh, in the drone industry as mm. well. You also have um, this idea that, I mean, eventually it's, you're, they're going to have to be avoiding other drones 
I mean, I can see a day when, you know, you've got a lot of drones flying around. Do, do you how how do you see this happening? I mean, I guess a lot of major laws and management and I mean, how are the air traffic controllers going to handle it and how do they currently interact or do they interact with drones? Well, that's a great question, and, and of course, uh, to a certain extent, our modern air traffic control system uh, it has been developed partially in response to uh, a legacy system back, you know, a hundred years ago, where there there was no radar, and 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 there was a famous accident in the 1950s of uh, over the Grand Canyon where two passenger uh, jets ended up colliding and and you know it was a horrendous loss of life and and as a response to that uh, you know the FAA uh, came into being and the the entire uh, air traffic surveillance network with radar and, and all of this stuff led to what we have today so um, how are drones going to fit into that mix well couple of things. One, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're likely going to have a segregation of, of airspace. Higher altitudes are mostly going to be for, for manned aircraft, lower altitudes for the drones. Uh, you'll still have the issue of how do the drones stay away from each other. Uh, and that'll be handled through a combination of uh, procedures. So over certain airspace, you know, drones flying in certain directions will be at certain altitudes. And if you're flying in an opposite direction, you'll be at a different altitude. Hmm. That's, that's the way we handle it for manned aircraft. This is still in development. NASA has entire research programs on basically drone air traffic control. Ultimately, though, there will be a need for each drone to be able to see and avoid other nearby drones. Do you think uh, you've been through pilot training and you've been through instrument certification? Do you think there will be a day where drone operators will be required to get similar, you know, licensing, similar ratings? Oh, they already are. Are uh, they? As a matter of fact, the uh, um, the FAA put into place. Uh, well, prior to this rule, um, there was no uh, easy provision for folks to fly drones commercially uh, except through a, uh, a waiver process. But last year they put in place a new regulation. It's called Part 107, uh, and it's for so-called small UAVs, basically those UAVs less than 55 pounds. Uh, and if you want to operate commercially, uh, then, uh, yeah, there's the, you, you have to get a license. And oh, wow. You have to learn about uh, airspace rules and regulations and, and things of this nature. That's great. I mean, so at least we're we're doing something, right, to, to, to make sure that not anyone can put them out there. Because, again, we hear stories of, you know, near midair collisions with drones, near airports. I mean, I know there's laws about that. I guess in the end, what uh, – what else would you? What else do you excite you as a professor that studies this, that is working on this? Where else do you see that these will benefit us? Well, uh, it's, so a couple of things. One, you 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 did mention that uh, you know there there are these sightings of drones in in places where they shouldn't be, and so one of the big challenges we have in the industry is uh, to a certain extent just. Uh, public awareness and, and education. Uh, you, you've got folks that, that fly these things and, and 
may not necessarily be aware of the danger they're posing if they're flying them close to airports, things of that nature. So that's one of the challenges that we have is just better, uh, better uh, public awareness. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, having said that, uh, on the positive side, you know, where where you know can these things uh, m- you know make the most impact? Uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that I see uh, that it'll it'll help tremendously is in uh, what we call infrastructure inspection, and so you have say. Uh, very tall radio towers, hmm. or you have uh, wind uh, turbines for for power generation. You know these these humongous uh, wind turbines. Uh, you know this infrastructure has to be inspected to see if parts are starting to wear out or fail or corrode. You know things of this nature. And historically, we've had to send humans up, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet into the into the air in order to to look at these things, and you know. Not surprisingly, accidents happen. People die as a result of these inspections. Uh, we may very well be able to eliminate that uh, by using drones. You know, send the drone up there with a high-resolution camera. Uh, take a look at the bridge or the tower or the you know the uh, the wind turbine and, and do your inspection all from the safety of the ground. I think that's. I mean, just that uh, plus. You know, fighting fires, I mean, sending being able to send drones up in certain places, I think could be valuable. there's 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 so many, I think, powerful opportunities that technology can can help us with and secure our even lives if if we just know how to manage it, manage it and make it work. Well, we appreciate you, Michael Brosh, thank you again, and uh, your great work there at Ohio University. Um, boy. Thank heavens there's some people thinking about this, right? Can you imagine if all of a sudden we just were making the laws without some experts behind the scene trying to figure out what the laws need to look like? We'll take a break, come back, continue uh, giving you the insight, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we're, we've talked Trump. We're going back to Trump. One of the things that's happening with President Trump as the as the president, a lot of CEOs, corporate leaders, they they now are a little worried because Trump could immediately put your company on notice. Trump could immediately, once he puts your company on notice for doing something he doesn't like. Then you could have your stock drop. Trump said last night he was in Kentucky. Yeah. He had a, uh, a rally. He's, that's what you do. Um, he spoke about Colin Kaepernick. Now, he's the quarterback yeah. of the 49ers who would take a knee during the national anthem. Trump says that no, no NFL team is, is looking to sign Colin Kaepernick as a quarterback because they're afraid of the Trump backlash on Twitter. That what he that he guarantees what happened because he's not respecting the flag. So he's taking some credit for this. Yes. Okay. So whether that's true or not, that's that sort of perception. He influences am, amongst companies. There yeah. are CEOs in Silicon Valley, in CEOs in Detroit with the auto companies, CEO in all kinds of uh, yeah. industries across the across the spectrum. There that are they have their social media teams up at three a.m. Eastern. 
You know, so on the West Coast, that's like what one o'clock, midnight, something like that, where these people are up <laughs> waiting for Donald Trump to tweet something because they don't want to wake up no. and their company's been a, been a featured in his Twitter feed. You could lose millions, hundreds of millions, yeah. So they're out there trying to combat this. So, okay, uh, I found this on there's a website called Axios. It's a new kind yeah. of a news website. It's uh, conversations with executives, top CEOs, and here's some of their tips of people who have dealt with Trump in business, and now you have to walk in and talk to him in the White House. Step one: get to the table, whether you love him or not. Go to the table because many are saying, "Hey, Jeff Bezos ought not be sitting down at the table with Trump because he's." Nobody likes him, but they're saying get to the table. You got to get face to face with this guy. Talk to him. He's he's a transactional guy. He wants to see you. Yeah. Step two was give him something he can call a win. Some companies are like, hey, we're announcing some jobs that they announced a year and a half ago that they were going to do anyways. But Trump Trump takes the credit. That's not a bad idea. Then he feels like if you're going to have an increase in jobs, tell Trump. They say he has an elastic view of winning. Yeah. He just wants to put his name on the winning. Uh, find a uh, three is find and exploit common ground. Find and exploit common ground. People, real estate, politics, private aircraft. Trump has been most engaged and open-minded when dealing with aerospace companies, partly because he can talk planes because you know he owns one, and uh, infrastructure execs because he spent his career building high yeah. rises. He has a surface level at best understanding of most policies. So go in. For uh, don't, going in for any sort of policy discussion. Yeah, don't go deep. Work. No, no, no. Just talk. Hey, I have golf clubs. You have golf clubs. Do you want to do a golf club deal? So talk on something he's going to yeah. relate to. Smart. Four. Know that he's a vindictive guy who harbors grudges long beyond the moment. So don't cross. Don't him. tick him off. <laughs> That's great advice. And five. Work Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner both men sit in on key meetings and often get Trump alone afterwards to shape reaction and follow up to the interaction. Both are accessible by text and cell and like playing the role of Trump whisperer. Uh, really? So get them, get the Trump whisperers involved. Yeah. Those are his influencers. Probably now Ivanka, if, if, you're, if well, that's yeah. more to your advantage, if you run a company, maybe she's the one you go after. Trudeau, they're saying Trudeau from Canada is really getting well, Ivanka involved. Right, yeah. Maybe over-involved. Possibly. That's weird. You can't even have a friend mm. in politics without everybody thinking there's more going on. Right. If you look at the photographs, it'll come out of that. It's kind of weird. Um... <laughs> Okay, well, that's great advice because I know uh, Jeff wanted to pitch a, a, an idea to Donald Trump. Well, a, it was a different Don. Oh, what Don? Oh, yeah. Don Shaline. Oh, Don. Oh, that Don. Our Don. Okay. I thought you were talking about Donald Trump. You wanted to pitch a new show, but I guess well, he's a he media. probably act. wouldn't have a lot of say in that. Well, he's a media mogul. No, he don't get me wrong. Yeah, he'd probably have some great advice. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, he would have to answer to Don Shaline. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. We all answer to Don Shaline. Let's not be, let's not lie. Hey, uh, interesting. Again, it's just, the president's just getting started. He's in day, what, 60-something. Seems like, you know. 160. No, he's just getting started. And so, you know, he's still got he's still got legs, he's still got time. Don't believe the press. 
Don't, well, believe part of what they're saying. Don't believe everything they're saying. That's what Donald's taught us. Don't believe everything the press is saying. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll continue the journey to help you, you know, get a leg up in life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Let me give you some principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, they're, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world. But if I, if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence – others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings, had their their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their, their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses, if I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into, you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things. How cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? Do they know if, if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what, what they're good at academically? Do they know what, they come, what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they, are they, do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful, powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice, really, that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat, and when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves, what do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. 
at some point, caring is is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is 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 something bigger than that. Caring is also it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life. I I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things that they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow, then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So I wanted to take a little bit of time um, and talk about um, thinking and our thoughts. I have a lot of people that I work with uh, in my practice that are their brains are going a million miles an hour and they have too many thoughts coming in. And it, with all this technology and with constant interruptions and the media and, you know, text messaging, emails, they've got a lot of thoughts, And so I wanted to help you out today and help you figure out how to to manage your thinking, your thoughts. Did you know um, some research suggests we have anywhere from 20 to 70,000 thoughts a day, right? Because – and by the way, remember, some of the thoughts are subconscious and some are conscious. Some of you actually think, oh, I like flowers. I'm having that thought right now about flowers. But some thoughts you don't even think about. 90% of thought you don't even think about. How much and how much of this has to do with social media, TV watching, reading, oh, yeah. reading? Interesting, right? And then you might put something into your head just because you saw it on social media, and your your brain at one level is still processing it, and then you might actually bring it into the the cognitive state where you now conscious state where you share it with another. So these thoughts get in our head, and I found that there's uh, there's four different kinds of thoughts. That I bring up. I mean, I'm sure if I talked to a neuropsychiatrist, we'd find seven. But I'm not a neuropsychiatrist. But I, I have some some ideas for how you can get the thoughts out of you. One of the keys, by the way, to thinking is thoughts are they stay in your head because of energy, right? It takes energy to keep a thought, to dwell on a thought, to process a thought, to access a thought. So if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, you are probably exhausted. So here's some ways to get these thoughts out of your head and to do it effectively. So some of the thoughts we have in life are just to organize us, right? Uh, The thought about scheduling, your appointment, 
They're the thoughts that we have in our life to keep us healthy, to make sure we don't get killed, uh, appointments we need to go to, places we need to go. And I know a lot of people that don't, they just think they're going to wing that. So what I have found is if you want to be able to create some peace of mind, you could immediately take all of those thoughts that are important, like don't forget to pick up your kids, don't forget to unplug the iron, all of these things that are really critical, you can now use your technology to help you schedule because you can now just press a button and say, Siri, set a reminder for me to unplug the iron at 8.50 when I'm leaving. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves is the dozens of alarms that I set on my phone to remind me to do everything. No, but see, see, that's her pet peeve. But you know what? Don't do any of that and then see what her pet peeve is. <laughs> I'm going to get anything done. It's going to be this guy gets nothing done. So if you could just eliminate a lot of thoughts by getting them scheduled, getting them planned, getting them in there, you would actually use the energy to tell Siri or however you want to schedule it, get it on your appointment calendar. That energy would help eliminate the thoughts. So you don't need to keep thinking it over and over and over and over. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night and you had a thought, oh, my heavens, I forgot my report's due tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you had to work on it. That's your subconscious waking it up. So those thoughts are still alive in us. Another thought are the thoughts that connect us. How many times have you been sitting there, uh, you heard something at work, you heard a story that you really like, and it reminded you of somebody, and you thought, hey, I really ought to connect to this person. A lot of us then, we don't connect then. So the rule is the minute you think it, do it. So if I think, hey, I really ought to forward this or share this with my wife, share it. Because if I would take that immediate thought of my wife and immediately create an act to share that thought, then that thought will actually go away from me. But have you ever had a situation where you thought, I really ought to call so-and-so, maybe you were prompted to do it, and you never called so-and-so. So you thought about it the next morning, then you thought about it the next afternoon, and the next morning, and the next afternoon, and that occupies energy and time, and you still haven't done it. But if you're having 70,000 thoughts a day, and that I mean that you would assume that that means that so many of these thoughts are jumping at you all at one time. Yeah. How do you prioritize and say, let's take care of this thought instead of this thought so that it'll go away? Well, I might do it this when you had the thought. Right. Like if all of a sudden I'm, I'm meeting with somebody and they say, hey, so can you meet Friday? I wouldn't say, let me go check on that. I would say, I, let me check. And I check right now because. I'm doing it now, so I don't – otherwise, I just delay it and I create 15 more thoughts of it. Do it now. If I have a prompting that I really ought to call so-and-so, I would either schedule a call to so-and-so or I might not call him. I might text him, and I might just do it right there. Hey, I just met a guy that mentioned your company and I thought of you. How are you doing? I'd just check in. Now, that will create issues. I get that. But – you're already going to have the issue if you thought or felt prompted to do something and you didn't do it. There is a reason we keep thinking to connect to people because it helps us stay alive and healthier. There are some other thoughts that block us, right? Those thoughts where we feel inferior, inadequate, we feel imperfect, we feel like a failure, some of those negative, ugly thoughts that we can't get out of our heads, or you know, the thought, I should apologize to so-and-so. One of the things that um, I might suggest you do is if it's an apology thought, just do the apology as fast as you can. Just get it done, band-aid off, rip it out. But if it's a if it's a typical thought that you're a failing parent, you're just not good enough, then um, I do this thing called data dumping where I suggest to my clients they take all of the energy of whatever they're hurting. Maybe it was a spouse that hurt their feelings or did something and write down what you were feeling. 
Write one line. Oh, he makes me so mad. I'm so sick of the guy. Then write a second line, but don't write it on a new line on the paper. Write it right on the top of the old line. So you now have written two lines on top, one line on top of the first line. And then write a third line about how that person makes you feel and write it on top of the first two lines you've written. So I've really only, I've written on top of the same line three times. And by doing that over and over and over and over until you get all the energy of the thought or the pain out of your head, you feel better. The pain goes away. And what's cool is it didn't take a form that you can read. So now you can say anything you want in written form and nobody can reread it, which I love. So it allows you a safe way to, uh, to get those thoughts out of you. Last but not least, there are some thoughts that inspire you. Anything you think you're gonna, that has inspired you, I would blog it, journal it, write it down. I'd get a journal. I'd make a family history. I'd record it. I'd talk it out. But I'd document it. I have a bunch of different sites I go to. But I, if I have an inspiring thought, I write the quote down. I collect a million quotes. And they inspire me. And eventually when I die, my kids are going to have a billion quotes. They're not mine. They're from everyone else. I'm constantly writing and learning. So just ways to get thoughts out of your head. Not that you need that, of course. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well. I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I love that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is, now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with, like English, English maybe Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language. Mm -hmm. You lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to oh, understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – 
are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still – the thing is though is – that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages? Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas. And as seawater levels rise – they ha- these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment changing, changing our languages and the culture. Yep, and taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's we have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah, and that's you know one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that means. That just means means get ready to fight me. Okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up, dad. I'm like, you want me to punch you? But he just, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's just being Sounded Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm -hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by, you know, decades and centuries before this of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation Mm -hmm. of different cultures. Uh, That's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. for years, right. they had forced education things. They were these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages, and now nobody can. Yeah, and we are, and our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? powerful what we lose when we i mean seven thousand languages we could lose 90 percent of them crazy we'll take a break folks this is the matt townsend show helping you see the good in the world we'll be back white collar criminals are categorized as businessmen or government officials who commit 
of financially motivated but nonviolent crime. Eugene Soltis uh, interviewed 50 former executives about their crimes to learn how they tick, to learn how they think in his book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White-Collar Criminal. Soltis dives deeper into the stories of these once seemingly successful business leaders. And today we have the benefit of having him with us to talk about his findings. Dr. Soltis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. This is uh, this was a really a very interesting um, read, and boy, the book, by the way, is huge. Well done, Doctor Soltis. <laughs> Thank you. Very well researched. Now, there's there's a different psychology apparently of a white collar criminal and um, uh, and just the average you know mugging on the street. Is that what you learned? Yeah, there's some very different characteristics associated with white collar crime. Uh, in particular, they're not close, intimate, physical offenses. Uh, In most cases, you don't need to get near uh, or even ever know who the victim is. Um, As a result, it it makes it easier to perpetrate, in many instances, these these really uh, damaging offenses without ever really feeling that you're actually doing harm to someone specific. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that so does does their crime sneak up on them then because of that do they not even fully get how impactful this is that's the part that it, it took me a while to really get as i spoke to many of these former executives is that they don't fully understand when they crossed the line and i think that's genuine it's just because sometimes the line is blurry in business but even afterwards they understand what they did was was harmful in that they're now facing some serious consequences because of that, but it doesn't really resonate in their gut that they did something so terrible. Uh, take something like insider trading. I mean, it's this kind of abstract crime that you uh, undermine the integrity of the financial markets, but really in the scheme of things, if you made $50,000 from trading, it's not going to really instigate this really strong feeling that you've seemingly undermined the well-being of the entire U.S. financial system. Right. And, and they're really – they're just business people. And one of the points you bring up in the book is they, re- they kind of do a cost-benefit analysis on the crime, and the cost-benefit pays off in their mind. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these instances, yeah, it's it's blurry. I, how I like to think of it is, it's a failure of of managerial intuition. They don't actually see the harm associated with the actions at the time, which is really different. I mean, right now, if they drop the prohibition against murder in most towns and communities, I could still walk outside. I wouldn't be worried about a pile of people coming to run up right. and stab me. We have a natural inclination, if you're a reasonably socialized person, to not commit that kind of harm. But in the business world, where a lot of these things, you're highly incentivized, highly motivated to push it more and more aggressively, uh, with, when those, in those rules and regulations are sometimes a little bit blurry um, or can be easily overlooked, uh, that's when you can actually push ahead uh, and go, go beyond this line and, uh, and commit some things that are pretty damaging and illicit in the process. Now, is this how you got onto this topic? I mean, you're a business professor at Harvard, for heaven's sakes, and now you're and now you're going to the prisons and the pokey, and you're talking to the these these people. Um, what was your What was your goal? What was your motive? What was your drive? Uh, so my drive was I, it, this started not as a research project or as an academic inquiry. Uh, rather, this started as, as a personal curiosity. I think like. Most people, when you look at the, the front pages of the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times and actually see uh, yet another one of these corporate titans, people that, you know, like many people, I looked up to a number of these individuals. Yeah. These are the people that speak at our, our university commencements that are the big donors in society. 
and wondered kind of what the heck happened again. Uh, so this started out with just uh, one late one evening, sending sending uh, a, a few letters to some well-known executives from Enron and Computer Associates and Tyco, and asking them some just questions that were on uh, that were on my mind. And from that, uh, one uh, this was one of the first letters I received from Dennis Kozłowski, the former CEO of Tyco, mm. who was convicted of embezzling over a hundred million dollars while he was actually one of the top CEOs in the country. Uh, said. Sure. Uh, I clearly have plenty of time on my hands now. Come, <laughs> come visit me, and we can chat. Wow. Did you? Were you excited to think? Okay, I'm going to go pick this guy's brain. Yeah. So in, initially, it was ex- excitement because I mean, this is someone that you've you've kind of read about for years, both in, in positive and then more recently in kind of a negative context. Uh, so it kind of excitement. But then when I pulled up to the prison, I remember this the first time, and and this is a, a, a low to medium security, so it, it's it's just fencing with the big barbed wire and a couple layers, and then you you walk in the prison's and this is you know again a, a low slash medium security, uh, it's exactly what you expect a prison is like though it's it's yeah. cold, it's dirty, it's noisy, it's really uncomfortable. And it's actually something throughout this project. I've never, I never gained, let's say, uh, a greater comfort for going to visit people in prison because it's, it's, a, it's a tough, nasty, rough environment. Mm. In fact, you, you talk about that too, where a, a lot of these people were right before they were caught doing what they were doing. They were also, you know, on the top 10 lists in magazines and they were speaking in, in big, uh, big, in big groups and they, they had a lot of accolades. They had a lot of attention. They were all, a lot of them at the peak of their career, right? These didn't seem like desperate people. No, not, not at all. I mean, some of the people that are in the book, uh, I mean, take someone like, you know, Raja Gupta. I mean, this is the former managing director of McKinsey & Company. Oh. I mean, really one of the most, you know, celebrated business leaders uh, in, in the world. Uh, it really had seemingly everything going, you know, personally and professionally. And, you know, ultimately, in the end, he, 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting, is calling up a, a billionaire hedge fund trader and divulging what he just learned at a Goldman Sachs board meeting. Mm. Um, something that just seeing is in such contradiction to a career that uh, you don't get to the top of McKinsey after 30 years by being sloppy. Uh, I mean, he's thoughtful, strategic throughout his entire career, but then it was able to make these these really quite compromised-looking decisions uh, after that time, which is why I think when we think about some of these challenges that executives face, they're how easily influenced we are. Uh, that if we start spending time around people with different norms and beliefs and kind of different rule books, we're going to start playing by those different norms in that different rule book. And you know, examples like his and some of the others I talk about in the book are I, really, in many ways, I look at a, a tragedy uh, to see to see what happens to these business leaders and the consequences that has uh, on all of us. Hmm. Was it when when they would act out like Raja did or others? Was it were they following someone else's example usually, or were they just innovating illegally? <laughs> So yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think in some cases it, there, there's, there's some people in both camps. Uh, sometimes it's, this is just how the game is played. Uh, a lot of people, you know, some of your listeners might have heard some of these kind of recent, the, the LIBOR or the FX kind of rigging. Um, yeah, right. Of, uh, this kind of traders from all around the world that were literally fixing the interest rates. But this is something where, I mean, they were doing this openly over their chat 
to different banks. I mean, this is something they weren't being particularly sneaky about it. I right. mean, the transcripts are all right there describing what was going on. They're joking about how they're rigging it. This is something where I think if any of us would have, you know, straight out of college, joined one of these one of these banks, which is virtually any large bank that had one of these desks, your boss would have said, you know, when you need something moved around, you just kind of call your buddies at the other bank and you talk about it and you kind of adjust the things as needed. And that's just how this is done. Huh. It's what not only what we do at our firm, it's what all the other firms do. So you would say, oh, this is how I this is how I work in this market. This is just how how the game is played. So it's not surprising that you would adopt that. Um, in other cases, when I think of something like Enron, though, they were being innovative hmm. uh, in that every time they saw a, a, another rule or regulation that could have kind of stopped them, they sat back and said, we see that as a problem. If we think a little bit harder, a little bit more in a more clever fashion, can we figure out a way around this? And, and ultimately, that I see as their, their failure. It wasn't, wasn't a lack of ideas, but it's the fact that they never saw a stop a stoplight or stop sign and said, you know, we just need to stop here. They thought, well, let's just take a little turn, go around this, and we can go faster. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, what was the total? So you had 50 people you visited and, and researched, but the, the total theft that they took was how much? Did you ever add that up? Oh, gosh. So that would be – I mean, once, once you put Bernie Madoff in the mix – Oh, that's true. Uh, huh? I mean, you have 20, $20 billion there that in some sense – the other ones, I mean, when you start talking hundreds of millions, I mean, those are big numbers, but yeah. it, it just starts getting dwarfed. But the couple major Ponzi scheme individuals I spoke with – so, uh, I mean, well, you know, the, the, the kind of the three largest uh, in, in history – or four largest are Bernie Madoff, Tom Peters, Alan Stanford, uh, and Stephen Hoffenberg – um, I spent time with all of them, and those are all in the you know billions, multi billions wow. of dollars. Uh, so it's it's Ponzi schemes that that really you could say add up. Yeah, and it's the the interesting thing about all of, just if we just took those group the the Stan, uh, Stanford Hoffen is it Hoffenberg Hoffenberg yeah Hoffenberg and Madoff just the but that was hundreds or thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people who lost their pensions lost money lost I mean th- these few people impacted a lot of people. Yeah, I mean Hoffenberg. I mean, most of the, the notes that he was he was ultimately uh, that he was taking and that were fraudulent, they were from uh, religious organizations and uh, pension funds. Wow! Uh, in, in many instances, uh, you know, in, he thought like many other people that you know he would get out of this hole. That this was a as Madoff often said, this is a was going to be a temporary situation where you know you you push forward. Um, but certainly, and I think Madoff is is exceptional in this regard that there was a time which he even stopped trading so any belief that he could get out of it so to speak uh was really just a an unrealistic uh, entirely unrealistic belief there there wasn't ever a chance once you actually stop trading yeah um, most of the other ponzi schemes people are doing something uh, i could say uh, if we were going to do it in a finance class they're never going to get out of it but they could at least pretend that they could because they were moving some things around right right uh, right well, I guess that's that illusion um, is also maybe part of their hubris, right? That they that keeps this whole thing going, the illusion that they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I think I mean that that helps make it I think a bit more comforting. Yeah. The challenge I, I've often faced when I think of I mean take someone like Madoff. I mean I think we would all like to say we would we would obviously never get in that situation right. in the first place. 
But just imagine, let's put ourselves in the position that we're already in this hole. We're already down, you know, billions of dollars. A bill, yeah. We can't get out of it. We, we, we have a day in which all our investors are calling and praising us, wanting to give us more money. Regulars are calling to get our, our expert opinions because we're one of the leaders in the market. Then that day we go home, Friday night, we go home to our beautiful penthouse. We see our, our lovely wife, our two kids that also work mm. in the firm. And, and, you know, after dinner, we retire to our office uh, and we say, you know what, I, this is wrong. This needs to stop. I need to call, you know, the FBI or the SEC to get this to stop. Most of us, I think, would say, I'll do that next week. I'll do, yeah. Two more days with my family. With, and the next week would come and the same thing would happen again. You'd say, I, I know this should stop, but I'll do it next week. And unless someone stops you, unless someone literally comes and pounds, pounds on your door and pulls you out in handcuffs, you just kind of keep it going. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think this is something so exceptional about Madoff or any of these characters in the book. It's something, if any of us was to fall prey and get in that situation, I think we would, most of us, unfortunately, would probably keep it going like right, that. Right, right. We, yeah, we would, we don't, we want to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That's, yeah. we, we don't uh, want we to go through this. we think in the short this. run, uh, we want one more dinner at home That's uh, right. before we're going to be locked up forever. Well, and, and then the shame and the humiliation and this supposed, you know, image you've built is going to collapse and... Uh, that's got to be incredibly Friend, stressful. I mean, all the friends, everyone that you've met, met your entire career, yeah. th- those are the first people. I mean, I think one thing that everyone has expressed to me is that, not to say this is a great strategy of actually figuring out who your real friends are, but when something like this happens, like those executives in my book, they find out very quickly who were their real friends and who were those friends because they were either wealthy or powerful. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and not surprisingly... 99% of the people turn out to be uh, fleeing and they yeah. never hear from again. Not your real friend. Uh, we're speaking with Eugene F. Sol- Soltis. He is a, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and is the author of the book, uh, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminals. Um, interesting, interesting topic. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Eugene F. Soltis. He is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and author of the book, Why They Do It, uh, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminal. And um, the fun thing about this, by the way, the book is is huge. And Eugene, I, first of all, did you visit, I guess you visited how many prisons to do this? And you ended up talking to 50, um, 50 white collar criminals, right? I, I did. Uh, so, uh, believe it or not, there were actually a couple prisons. Uh, like B- Bernie Madoff is actually the person I've spent the most time with. Uh, I mean, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we would speak on the phone, hundreds of pages of letters and emails. Wow. Um, I've actually never had the chance to visit him in prison. Uh, I've got rejected from the prison, though. Uh, oh, really? Apparently, I, provi- I, I create a safety hazard 
for the prison. Uh, I think they just well, want yeah. less visitors. <laughs> You're from Harvard. <laughs> you yeah, guys can't yeah, be yeah. just. I guess, you know, uh, my, my, wife, my wife would be, it'd be amazed to hear that I'm the yeah. danger there. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you're a threat. Um, so that's interesting. So you had a lot of interaction with Bernie Madoff. And so t- what, what, did you, like, what else shocks you in all of your learning and, and, and working with these people, uh, the white-collar criminals, really the cream of the white-collar criminal crop? What, um, what, what did you learn? What stands out? I think one of the things that really surprised me is the the lack of remorse, which which really took me a long time to kind of to resonate with yeah. me. Um, and that I mean, when people were sent away in these positions, it, they had remorse. They missed their you know daughter's graduation, their son's birthday, you know their their anniversary with their their wife. I mean, those things really resonated. And many of them, I think, have become amazing. I see Amer- amazing parents and the extent their marriage held up, uh, amazing spouses uh, afterwards. But the actual crime themselves, um, it was an intellectual. It's almost like a discussion with them. And much of my time was not t- discussing their case, but was actually discussing. I would read, bo- discuss books with them, the kinds of things I'm doing in class. And to see that it was much more of like an intellectual exercise to identify why this was a bad thing. Interesting. Or a, a, a wrong thing. And, and that's why I ultimately came to this was, this was a, the challenge with white-collar crime of how it just doesn't resonate with us the same as an as an outsider, we, we view it very much like a victim does, uh, mm. that, you know, this is outrageous. Clearly, a smart person should identify this. Yeah. Um, but the trick is, is that, I mean, we believe that we will stop if, if we know the difference between right and wrong. But I'll say we, we all do things that we know are wrong uh, to the extent we, we all speed a little bit if we're driving on right. a highway. Right. And we say, well, we're just keeping up with traffic. We know you can go 70 in a 65. That's fine. Everyone does that. Um, it, but we know it's wrong. Um, and, and so knowing the difference between right and wrong is not sufficient. What we really need is that gut feeling that what we're doing is harmful. Uh, and again, this is why, you know, we're not going to go out and stab someone even if there was no law against it. Right. It feels harmful. The trick is that in white-collar crime, and, and as I saw these executives, they don't feel it's harmful. As a result, they never got that, that kind of flashing stop sign. Um, but it, it made me think about a lot about my behavior, uh, I think, a little bit differently and how – I, like most people, you know, justify, you know, little, little, little kind of deviance here and there, going a little bit fast here, uh, that it just, why do I think that's okay, but, but not something else? Do we, um, is, is there any way, I guess, to, to change that, do you sense, to train it differently? I mean, I guess it is. It's different if I pull a knife and I threaten physical harm on you versus, you know, access your funds and and take your funds, that's financial harm. It could be physical harm as well, but it's just, there's, yeah, there's just not this edge to it. Right. I mean, I think that one of the things that was interesting that I saw was that everyone thinks that they're kind of, they're the good guy. Right. Um, I mean, when I talk to the people that do insider trading, they say, yeah, I know some, you know, a, a little bit money was, but at least I was trying to build a firm. It's those guys that did financial fraud that are the real villains. And then you talk to people who did financial fraud, and they're like, but I was trying to build a firm, and yeah, I turned left instead of right. It's the people that did Ponzi schemes that are right. the real problem because they didn't even want to build a firm. And then you talk to the Ponzi schemers, and they say, yeah, fine, maybe a billion dollars is lost, but that's nothing compared to the CEOs of the financial firms during the financial crisis that lost you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and that aren't even in prison. And so it's always everyone, no matter who they are in my book, they can see themselves as not as the, the, the real, real bad guy. And I think that's the challenge. I actually, I gave, 
I've been doing a survey with, with uh, students from some of the top management programs, uh, uh, alumni. And one of the questions which, which I've asked is, you know, do you see yourself as an honest person in some of these surveys? Hmm. And, and not surprisingly, you know, you see 98, 99% yeah, absolutely. say yes. Um, it actually always amazes me that there's always 1% that say no to nope. that question. But <laughs> I'm a scoundrel. 90, 90, and then I, later on in the survey, I ask a question. In the past six months, have would someone in your firm describe you have, have, having done something that would be considered dishonest or, or unethical? Now, 99% of people say they're honest people, so you would say, well, you know, one or two percent would answer. Turns out, I find around twenty twenty plus percent of people, huh. twenty twenty one percent, say yes. I've done something dishonest in the past six months. Wow! And, and, the, and these are these are not criminals. These no. are our students coming out of management programs, and that's exactly I think the challenge we face. Going to your question of how do we stop this is we we are all able to maintain this view that on one hand we're honest and, and you know thoughtful and respectful individuals, well simultaneously doing things that are sometimes a little a little rough on the edges. And we well ultimately what we need to do is 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 basically reconcile these two things. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well, and again, um I I wonder as as you sit with Bernie Madoff, does he does what's his stance on what he did? Is is he very similar to what you're talking about? He he just doesn't quite feel the remorse he may need to. Yeah, I mean, it, Bernie's a little bit different than really any any other person I spoke with in that he actually did know his his victims. I mean, these were family, these mm. were friends, these were members of the kind of his religious community. They were in the Jewish community, um, so he's a little bit different in that regard. But but in every case, you know, he rationalizes his, his behavior um, and and the harm to his victims. So, for example, the money that was lost from the charities. I mean one of the things that people most often point out is being like, how could he have done that yeah. to these charities? Um, he looks at the only reason the money's had, uh, charities had any money in the first place is because they were created from these false gains earlier in time. Hmm. So in some sense, he gave them a fake $100 and then took that fake $100 back. So it was the charity never really existed in the first place. Interesting. And so he doesn't feel like he actually hurt the charity. It just he kind of lived a fake life, and then he took it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, strictly speaking, in some instances, that's technically true, but that's a real—I'll say—that's a, it's that's a, a <laughs> bitter pill to be taking. Being like, you know, you can—it's it, deception. It's it the is. Deepest, deepest well, it's Ponzi struggle. scheme by definition, right? I mean, it's—it's yeah. it's, when you when you look at this too. Do you see as a business professor? It, do we do we teach? Are we not teaching enough um, about ethics? and maybe too much about competition? I actually think we, we make ethics too easy, is what I will oh, say, do we? Okay. in the classroom. And that, you know, most of the time, you know, whether it's corporate training uh, or, or in a business school classroom, what generally happens is you, you bring people a, a case uh, of some, quote, challenging situation, and you say, we're going to discuss this for an hour, and we're going to figure out how we ought to resolve this. But simply by giving people in a training exercise, in a corporate training exercise, the case that they need to discuss, you've already vastly simplified the ethical decision, uh, difficulty of the ethical decision, because you've already told them what the trade-off is and what the ethical dilemma is. In a lot of instances, you know, let's go back to Raja Gupta. The trouble for him is if we were to pull out and say, should you call a hedge fund 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting <laughs> and divulge what you learned? 
let's have an hour-long discussion around this. Uh, let's just say that wouldn't be a particularly interesting discussion right, to have. Right. That would be resolved in eight seconds. And he would presumably identify that in eight seconds as being a clearly the wrong thing to do. But in many instances, people just don't see what they're doing is harmful. They don't see the consequences genuinely at the time. Yeah. And so what we need to do is, at least as I see, stop spending time just kind of pontificating and think, doing these exercises, which, if anything, can lead to false confidence that we're actually better at solving yeah. these ethical dilemmas. I wouldn't have called. Really <laughs> right. uh, yeah, we, I mean, we all, we all successfully pass it. You leave the class or the training exercise and say, great, I, I, can, I can resolve any of these things when I, when I run into them. What we need to do is basically accept, maybe with a little bit more humility, that when we're actually placed in these compromised positions, like many of these smart, smart executives were, that we might not always do the right thing. That pressure, norms, uh, a lot of incentives can drive us to do things that we would never, ever think when we're sitting in the comfort of our our room right now that we would ever do. Well, it seems like that would be so valuable. And let's start designing systems that help intercede earlier and, and kind of create that red light, even when we might not see it ourselves when we're actually at the time making these decisions. Because there are triggers and every human has triggers and, you know, insecurities and fears. And boy, if you could help uh, a, a program in a program, a uh, an MBA program, a student to identify what their triggers are. I mean, it might not be financial triggers that worry them. It might be, you know, looking good with others. It might be their in- other insecurities, other fears they have. So, I mean, I guess awareness could be a huge uh, lesson to teach. What else? Yeah. What else could we be just teaching our kids? And how how should we take this as a teaching tool for our own families, for our own you know family members that are in business, or for any of us that think that we're above crime? I think uh, how how easily influenced we are actually by by the surrounding norms. I mean, it's something you know we teach we teach you know our, our kids. You know, you're going to be influenced by who you hang around with on the playground. Right. But it, what's funny is as we get kind of older and older, we we generally don't take that advice quite as seriously. Uh, I mean, the number of people that you know, smart smart students that I, I've had that that I see that believe that they can enter a firm that has maybe a, a let's just say a a pretty aggressive or maybe even a, a slightly compromised culture but what you think is that i'm a i'm an ethical person i'm a better person than that so if anything i will help change that it won't change me yeah and this is what we naturally do and or we'll or even if we we seek it's a little dodgy and this is not what i want to be a part of i'll leave but the trick is is that more often than not Two things are going to happen. First, you're probably going to become that culture. Right. Uh, it, it, so, and you're not even going to identify it when you are compromised. But even if you're a, able to identify and say, wow, this is, I, I'm in way too deep, the problem is then you're in the situation of quitting, whistleblowing. It, there's only bad outcomes for you in that case. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I wish we would all take kind of the advice that, you know, we give our, our sons and daughters on the playground and, and actually figure out how to incorporate that more into how we all make our, our career decisions. It's so good. Eugene F. Soltis, thank you so much for your insight, your great work. Again, remember, Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, author of the book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal. Powerful, uh, powerful insight, I think, for all of us. You are not above uh, crime. You're not. And it's the second you think you are, you are setting yourself up. We all will fall uh, prey to just those 
trends, those beliefs, those assumptions, those fears, those insecurities. We got to stay on our toes. And we also can't just allow a white collar criminal to seem less significant of a criminal than um, than every other crime going on out there on the streets. Great insight. We'll take a break, friends. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, we were talking white-collar crime, but a bigger crime may be letting Elmo go. Could be. Our cute little red friend. Is it true that they he had an exit interview? It was a mock exit interview. Oh. The idea being if the, the proposed budget goes through okay. and if PBS takes a bunch of cuts – what happens to Elmo? All right. Now I thought they're. I thought they were only showing new content on HBO. Well, the, the, as the article points out, that this is attached to uh, Sesame Street has an HBO deal also, so they're probably in better financial situations. But uh, but what about the other Muppets? Well, well, it's the other Muppets, but also the availability of the show because many rural areas their PBS affiliates would go away because of hmm. funding. And so kids wouldn't be able to see right. this educational programming, oh. and so there's that involved too. So it's kind of a, a fun parody they put together for – I think the Huffington Post put it together, but All it's right. quite funny. Go ahead. Hey, what's going on? Oh, thanks for coming in, Elmo. Uh, we have something very important to discuss. Elmo happy to help. Elmo loves to help. Elmo, uh, it does mean no great joy to inform you that due to recent cuts in government funding to PBS, you are no longer employed by Sesame Street Workshop. Huh? What? Elma, you're being laid off. Just like that? Elma's been working at Sesame Street for 32 years! Elma, Elma... Y- yes, Elma well, Elma, the Trump administration is getting all arts and education funding from the new congressional budget. But Elmo's rent just went up. Elmo, you're going to land on your feet. Don't uh, worry. But Elmo hasn't been unemployed since the 80s. What's going to happen to Elmo's insurance? Elmo has pre-existing condition. Well, you should apply for government health care. Well, you can. <laughs> That's being gutted, too. Uh, where is Elmo supposed to go? Elmo's only real talent is being Elmo. Well, you could take pictures with tourists in Times Square for tips. Huh? <laughs> Are there other monsters fired too? Cookie Monster? Tully Monster? Yes, we let Tally and Cookie go this morning. But what about the kids? They have YouTube, Elmo. YouTube. Okay, Elmo will go bye-bye now. His oh. disdain for YouTube. That's sad. Wow. Elmo is be looking for Elmo and Cookie Monster at a Walmart greeter position yeah. near you. I'm not sure what a Muppet is to do in a, this kind of economy. Soon to be years. Elmo the Hobo. <laughs> That'll be a movie. <laughs> Elmo the Hobo. But it does kind of shine a light on the reality when he said, what about the kids? Like, what about all these kids that don't necessarily have Wi-Fi access to watch YouTube and all the wonderful joys of that and instead had PBS. Yeah. 
<sighs> my ch- we, I showed this to my kid last night. He's like, where's Elmo going? And like tears. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, hold no, on, no, hold no, on. no, 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 no. <laughs> this is just, we'll have HBO, son. Dad will take care of you. Oh, it's sad, you know. You, these decisions hurt people. Yeah. They hurt people. Well, okay. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 